We're just a few weeks away from the launch of my new supplement line, Adapt Natural, so I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it so you know what to expect. We'll be launching with the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that work together to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you perform and feel your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. The Core Plus Bundle was formulated using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and mimic the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Most of us have patched together a cupboard full of supplements without a clear strategy or plan. The Core Plus Bundle has been carefully curated to give you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. The five products in Core Plus support your health from A to Z, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. Stay tuned for more info in next week's episode. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week I have another solo cast episode for you with some of the most interesting recent research uh, and headlines that I've come across over the past few weeks. So we're going to talk about a study showing that most of us dramatically underestimate our food intake. And I'll talk about what that means for nutrition research and uh, for anyone on a weight loss diet. This is something that I have mentioned a number of different times. It's one of the biggest weaknesses of nutrition research. Uh, and this is a really interesting new study on that topic. Uh, then we'll review a study that looked at how our circadian biology, which is our daily rhythms of sleep and wakefulness, impact the results of calorie restriction in mice, and then the practical implications of that for us human beings. We'll talk about new research showing that insomnia during middle age leads to cognitive issues later in life. This isn't a big surprise, but I think it's another really good reminder for us to take insomnia seriously and address it when it arises. We'll discuss a recent study on lion's mane mushroom compounds and their potential impact on Alzheimer's disease, both prevention and treatment. And then we'll review a study that might seem just even too obvious to talk about, uh, at least on the surface, that found that making good lifestyle choices extends our lifespan. But I want to talk a little bit about it because I think this doesn't actually get the attention that it deserves. And most people underestimate the impact that good lifestyle choices has on our health span. Uh, we'll cover a study on how antibiotics can lead to a much greater risk of fungal infections because they impact the gut microbiome adversely and this this one i always smile when i see studies like this because uh in the past the idea that you, know, you could even have a fungal infection or fungal overgrowth like candida was was really considered to be a quack uh, idea in the conventional medical world now i'm seeing studies like this almost every week so looking forward to talking about that and then last but not least we'll talk about a change in the u.s recommendation to take a, a low-dose aspirin every day for cardiovascular disease prevention for uh, people who are middle-aged and older. This is really significant. So 
definitely stick around for that last piece because this this uh, has really important implications um, for you know middle-aged and older adults that are currently taking a low-dose aspirin. All right, let's dive in. Okay, so the first study was called Obese Individuals Do Not Underreport Dietary Intake to a Greater Extent Than Non-Obese Individuals when data are allometrically scaled. So always these studies have really long names, sorry for that. Uh, but I want you to know exactly what study I'm talking about since we're in an audio format here and I can't link to the studies. So what the researchers were actually trying to study here is that there, there's been this idea that was based on some earlier studies that obese and overweight individuals tend to underreport their food intake um, more than lean individuals. And this study actually found that that's not the case, that lean individuals uh, underreport their calorie intake to the same extent that overweight and obese individuals do. But what I found to be most interesting about this study is that everybody across the board, uh, no matter what their body weight is, pretty dramatically underreports their calorie intake. In fact, on average, everybody eats the equivalent of three cheeseburgers a day more than they admit to eating. So we're not talking about small differences, we're talking about pretty big differences. And uh, the reason that this is such a big issue is that in most cases with um, nutrition studies, researchers use something called a food frequency questionnaire um, or other methods that depend on the individual's memory of what they ate and then reliably reporting what they ate on some kind of a questionnaire. Now, whenever I talk to people about this, they're shocked that that's how nutrition studies are performed because they are well aware that memory is not a, a very reliable tool when it comes to reporting food intake. So if I even just ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Chances are you're going to remember that pretty well. If I ask you what you had for lunch two days ago, you might also remember that. But if I ask you to list all of your food intake from several days ago, you're almost certainly not going to remember that, and you're certainly not going to be able to report it accurately. And yet, you know, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit here, but this is generally in the past how food intake has been assessed for nutrition studies. So there's such huge potential for introducing all kinds of error and bias here. Most people not only underreport their calorie intake, they underreport their intake of foods that they perceive to be unhealthy um, because they don't want to be judged by the researchers. That's just a natural human tendency. And you know, a lot of people in the studies are susceptible to that. And so that's another reason that the, the data that are collected for these studies tend to be quite unreliable. But in terms of how this really relates to just you know, day-to-day -day life and those, those of us who are, you know, paying attention to what we eat and, and for folks who are trying to lose weight and, and maybe even in, uh, engaging in voluntary calorie restriction in order to do that, it's just a reminder that our own assessment, you know, using our memory to determine how much we're eating is, is not a really reliable tool. So if, if you are trying to carefully track what you eat and reduce the amount of calories that you eat, then it's probably best to use one of the many apps that are out there uh, and to be pretty methodical about recording what you eat and using something like an app to determine your calorie intake rather than just winging it and relying on your memory. Because uh, 
as we see in the study, that's just just not a, a, a reliable uh, metric. Regarding calorie restriction, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the next study, but uh, I, I should mention that most research has shown that voluntary calorie restriction, where you're intentionally reducing calories, is not a very effective strategy for weight loss. Um, so here I'm, I'm not getting into the debate about whether, you know, calories in, calories out versus, you know, lo macronutrients like low carb, low fat. I I'm simply commenting on the research that looks at whether calorie restricted diets are actually effective in the long term. And generally they're not because most people are not able to overcome the hardwired biological mechanisms that kick in when we eat fewer calories than, than our brains think we need. So in an ancestral environment, food scarcity was a much bigger problem than food abundance, which is the biggest problem in our current environment, at least in the Western world. So most of our ancestors didn't have to worry about eating too much. They had to worry about not getting enough food. And so our, our brains have several different mechanisms for uh, ensuring that that doesn't happen, that we don't eat too little food. And these include things like, you know, if we if our calorie intake starts to fall below what our brain uh, thinks is required, then our appetite will go up. We can start absorbing more calories from the same amount of food that we eat. So we're, we're actually become more efficient at extracting those calories. And then our basal metabolic rate, our resting energy expenditure, will decrease as the body tries to conserve energy. So all of these mechanisms work against any kind of effort toward voluntary calorie restriction. And it, it's important to note that the brain may be defending a weight that is unhealthy or higher than, than we think it should be, than our doctor thinks it should be, than health guidelines think it should be, but that doesn't matter. From the brain's perspective, it's protecting us against starvation and it has some pretty powerful tools to do that. And most human beings are not able to successfully override those hardwired mechanisms for more than just a short period of time. And that's why calorie restriction or voluntary calorie restriction is not typically that effective for most people. Okay, so let's go on and talk about the next study, which is somewhat related. So this was called circadian alignment of early onset Caloric restriction promotes longevity in male mice. So I you know, want to emphasize this was a study in mice, not in humans, uh, but it was a pretty interesting study. They looked at the effects of circadian rhythm on biology, and this is a very hot topic in the research world, and, and in particular uh, in people who study the, the neurobiology of weight loss. We know from a lot of previous animal studies that calorie restriction can extend longevity. That this study suggests that the body's daily rhythms may play a pretty significant role in that. So the researchers followed hundreds of mice over their lifespan and found that in the mice that were restricted calories, those who ate only in the most active part of their day had an extended lifespan compared to mice that were also eating in the, the less active part of the day. So this can, I think, shed light on the mixed results that we see in time-restricted eating studies in, in humans. Uh, for example, there have been some studies that have come out recently that have shown that time-restricted eating 
doesn't necessarily lead to weight loss and even doesn't always uh, lead to metabolic improvements and things like blood sugar or insulin levels. But what this study suggests is even if that's the case, there may be other mechanisms that time-restricted eating engages that can extend lifespan even when weight loss or, or changes in blood sugar levels aren't happening. So what do we make of this? Well, as I said, we know that calorie restriction extends lifespan in a whole range of animals from worms and flies to mice, rats, and even primates. But that's been difficult to confirm uh, in humans because humans have pretty long lifespans relative to other animals. And it's not possible to lock someone in a metabolic ward for their whole lifetime and restrict their calorie intake and you know, perform a controlled study, those, those conditions that, you know, just don't exist and they, they won't happen. So we've been left to wonder to some extent whether some of these impacts that we see in other animals would transfer over to humans. And it's not just about uh, extended lifespan, the calorie restriction has also been shown to uh, lead to weight loss, of course, improved blood sugar regulation, lower blood pressure, and even reduced inflammation in those animal studies. Uh, I think there's a reasonable assumption that calorie restriction in humans may produce some of the same effects. And I think we could also perhaps reasonably assume that, that the same effect that was observed in this study with mice, where you know all of the mice were eating calorie-restricted diet, but the best effects were found in mice that were only eating during their most active time of day. So if we, you know, put that in practical terms for humans who are following a time-restricted eating approach, the best window for food intake would likely be in the morning and during the day, uh, because that is typically the most active time for, for humans. Of course, it varies now, people working different schedules and shifts, but let's say you know, you're, you're generally awake and active during the daylight hours and less active during the nighttime hours, then, you know, doing your, your food intake window from something like 10 to 5 or 10 to 6 uh, is probably better than doing it from like 12 or 2 in the afternoon until 8 or 10 at night. Um, because that's the time, you know, those daylight hours regulate, you know, the exposure to sunlight through our eyes impacts our, our chronobiology and leads to a whole bunch of changes in the body that uh, make us more primed for food intake. And so uh, I think that's just an important takeaway from this study. If you're following time-restricted eating, it's best to do that during the hours that you're most active, whatever those hours are. Now, uh, going back to what we talked about on the la in the last study, is it a good idea to follow a calorie-restricted approach to extend your lifespan and get these other benefits? I think there's a, a challenge with voluntary calorie restriction that I mentioned where there tends to be a bunch of rebound effects that are, are um, somewhat undesirable and then, you know, just just sticking with the voluntary calorie restriction over time can be difficult. And then the third thing is that while restricting calories might extend lifespan and lead to some of those other benefits, it doesn't mean that it's not without potential downsides. Uh, many years ago, my friend and colleague Rob Wolf, uh, who is a research biochemist as an undergrad, and I'm sure many of you know, was you know, kind of one of the modern fathers of the paleo movement, 
he introduced a framework for thinking about this uh, question that really stuck with me and I still use, which is that if you imagine a triangle and on the top of the, the triangle is, let's say, performance, and on the lower right of the triangle is longevity, and the lower left of the triangle is health. Doesn't matter where those things are on the triangle, but those are the three points of the triangle. Um, Rob argued, and I agree with him on this, that it's impossible to optimize for all three of those points of the triangle simultaneously. So for example, if you wanna optimize for performance above all else, and you're a competitive you know, weightlifter or something like that, and you're not concerned with rules or regulations or health or longevity, you're probably gonna take steroids or do a bunch of other stuff that will totally goose your performance at the expense of your health and your longevity. Likewise, if you prioritize health over all else, you might not, you know, and, and by health, I mean the full spectrum of health, like your, your how you feel, your your well-being your uh i would include like performance and, and health and longevity as factors in health but not the only factors you're just trying to live the best life you can a balanced life you may not have the same level of performance going back to the weightlifting analogy as someone who's you know taking performance enhancing drugs and pulling out all the stops because they don't care about their health or long longevity and then coming back to the study we're talking about now, if you optimize for longevity, you might make choices like, you know, significantly reducing your calorie intake, and that could definitely lead to a longer life if, if the animal research holds true for humans, but you might be cold and miserable for a lot of your life and just, you know, not really enjoying your life as much in, in the present and not as healthy, perhaps, in, um, not, not feeling quite as healthy. So that's really how I think about this. And everybody just has to decide what's best for them in that triad and what they're optimizing for. For me, I, I optimize for health because I believe that that will lead to still very high levels of performance and still you know, great longevity, but a life that's much more enjoyable uh, and rewarding while, while I'm living it. So that's just my approach. Yours may be different, but I think that's a helpful framework and way to think about it. Okay, so the next study is one that looked at the incidence of insomnia during middle age and then the prevalence of cognitive issues in people who struggle with insomnia at that time in their life. And it's another very long title, Trajectories of Insomnia Symptoms Among Aging Employees and Their Associations with Memory, Learning Ability, and Concentration After Retirement. So one of the good things about this study is there was a very long uh, prospective cohort study with, with an extended follow-up period of 15 to 17 years. So they, act, they followed the participants for quite a while which means they were able to collect and analyze a lot of data and of course uh, strengthens the validity of the results. And they found, the researchers found that long-term insomnia symptoms can pose a risk of poor cognitive functioning later in life, especially memory, learning ability, and concentration. So I'm sure most of you listening to this podcast uh, already know how important high quality sleep is it's received a ton of attention over the past several years from myself and many other people in the health world. And, you know, I've come to believe that 
that high quality sleep is probably even more important than diet because you can live for quite a long time on a crappy diet and many people do but if you are not you can die from not sleeping for, uh, for just a, a few days like not sleeping at all and there are just so many studies now that show that even a single night of disrupted sleep can you know decrease insulin sensitivity increase blood sugar levels uh, lead to poor choices around food and uh, increase inflammation oxidative stress and so many other harmful effects but this study i think makes it even more clear that insomnia should be addressed when it's present because uh, cognitive issues and and more advanced concerns like dementia and alzheimer's are on the rise uh, alzheimer's has been climbing the list of the top causes of death in the u.s and it's a scary condition um, for you know anyone who's experiencing it themselves or for their loved ones who are caring for them and i think uh, we can all agree that we want to do everything we can to protect our cognitive health as we age and our brain health and avoid uh, conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's, if, if at all possible. So I've talked a lot over the years about tips for improving sleep, so I'm not going to go through the exhaustive list here. Uh, I have a recent article on this called Eight Tips for Beating Insomnia and Improving Your Sleep. So if you just search for Cresser, eight tips for beating insomnia, that should come right up. I'm gonna briefly cover a few of them just to kind of jog your memory. I think a lot of this will be reviewed for many of you, but one is restricting artificial night uh, light at night in the bedroom. I talked about that a few shows back. It's really important and it's pretty easy to do. So, you know, replacing your digital alarm clock with an analog clock, getting blackout shades, uh, wearing a sleep mask, whatever it takes to make your room dark is, is super important. Uh, another is, is keeping your sleep environment cool. And there's a couple different ways of doing that. One is to control the ambient temperature in the room, you know, air conditioning or opening windows or whatever. And another is to control the sleep surface, usually a bed. And that's even more effective because uh, studies have shown that cooling the sleep surface will actually lead to greater reductions in core body temperature, which is what we're going for. And I've been a big fan of devices like uh, what used to be called the chili pad. Now it's called, it was, then it was called Uller. And I think it's now sleep me. Um, it's a little bit, been a little bit confusing with the name changes, but this is a, a pad that you put on your mattress and it uses tubes with water circulated through the pad to cool that pad and thus the sleep surface that you're on. And that can be an absolute game changer for people. Another um, approach is to eat your carbohydrates later in the day. So it's called a carbohydrate backloading. And we know that melatonin is synthesized in the, the pineal gland from uh, serotonin. And eating carbohydrates at night can actually lead to a greater increase in serotonin, which might also uh, increase melatonin levels. So that's something to consider. Another tip is to manage your stress through the day. I've always said if you run around like a chicken with your head cut off during the day and then you expect to just, you know, push a button, say it's time for sleep and then fall into a deep and restful sleep, that's just not going to happen. That's not how uh, our, our biology or our brains work. So taking steps throughout the day to manage stress and 
regulate the nervous system, whether that's with, you know, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, qigong, walks, spending time in nature, breathing techniques, uh, whatever it is that doing even just a little bit of that throughout the day can make a huge difference when it comes time to sleep. Likewise, exercise is key. I'm sure many of you have experienced that. You know, for me, that's one of the biggest factors. If I'm like busy traveling for work, I'm in a conference or something, and I don't have time to exercise like I normally do, it will definitely impact my sleep. It makes a big difference. Getting exposure to bright natural light during the day is another key factor um, that helps to entrain our circadian rhythms, which we've been talking about a little bit on this show, and uh, ensure that you know cortisol production is solid during the day, and then melatonin production is strong at night. And then uh, the other thing I want to mention here, and you can uh, go read that article for all the details on these strategies and a few more, is it's really, really critical to identify and then address any sleep-related issues like apnea or restless leg syndrome. So sleep apnea is extremely common and the vast majority of people who have it don't know that they have it. So there are a growing number of at-home sleep tests that you can get now. It used to be a real pain in the butt to get a sleep study. You had to go into a formal sleep clinic and spend the night there and get hooked up to tons of wires and it just always struck me as being really artificial. It's not the kind of environment that many people sleep in and it's cumbersome and it's expensive, especially if insurance isn't going to cover it. Uh, but there are tests like the WatchPat one uh, that are FDA approved now and may not be quite as accurate as a, a formal sleep study, but they're still uh, very accurate and, ac and, and more than accurate enough to diagnose uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And we use them on our patients for many years, and I've we've consistently found people who are struggling with sleep apnea who didn't even know that they had it. And then when we correct that, either with a, like a mandibular advancement device, a dental treatment, or if it, they they get a CPAP or you know any number of other approaches, then their sleep improves dramatically. But their health, their overall health also improves dramatically. So um, I think this is something that's really important to pay attention to, and it's something that's often missed. So just keep that in mind. And if you are struggling with insomnia, whether you're in middle age or younger or older, definitely uh, check out that article. Just again, Google Cresser, eight tips for beating insomnia and improving your sleep, you know, pop right up. And if you employ even just a few of those strategies, you should see pretty significant results. I also want to mention that um, when we released the Adopt Naturals uh, Core Plus Supplement Bundle in July, which I, you may have heard the announcement on that in the past couple of podcasts or if you're on the email list, we also built an app called the Core Reset app. And this app is designed to help you get your diet and lifestyle totally dialed in because as amazing as our supplements are uh, you cannot supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle and so we wanted to put our money where our mouth is so to speak and really give people the tools they need to clean up their diet and then improve their sleep their physical activity and their stress management and we're giving this away for free to all customers who buy the core plus bundle so 
I'm really excited about that. I think it's it's going to be an amazing resource, and we're definitely uh, going to have a full week in in that program that's dedicated to improving sleep with lots of videos, audios, guided meditations, guided relaxation exercises, uh, a full Qigong series, and a bunch of other stuff that will really help you take the next step towards calming and regulating your nervous system and getting better sleep. So look out for more on that in the weeks to come. If you follow my work for any length of time, you know how much I care about the quality of the meat I eat. And that's why I've been a huge fan of ButcherBox since they started. ButcherBox delivers incredibly high quality meats like 100% grass-fed beef and free-range organic chicken right to your door at a cost of less than six bucks per meal. I love ButcherBox because it's so flexible. I can customize my box right on their website, and I love that they source their products in a way that supports the planet and the livelihoods of farmers. I look forward to receiving my box each month because they always include a range of cuts that keeps our meals varied and interesting. I love their New York strip and skirt steaks because they're delicious and so easy and quick. I just throw them on the grill for a few minutes. But I also love cuts like pork shoulder roast, which is amazing for carnitas and pulled pork, and brisket because they're so juicy and tender. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a special deal, free bacon for the life of your membership, plus 10 bucks off. Go to butcherbox.com RHR and use the code RHR to receive one pack of free bacon in every box for the life of your membership, plus an additional 10 bucks off your first order. I've been talking about ButcherBox for a long time, and this is one of the best deals I've ever seen them offer. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash RHR and use the code RHR to receive this deal. You probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably don't know is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, to build muscle, and to recover faster. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want more energy, lean muscle, and faster recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on subscriptions and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser. All right, so this next study is really exciting. This is about lion's mane mushroom compounds and Alzheimer's disease. As I just mentioned earlier, Alzheimer's is now the fifth leading cause of death and the cases are increasing significantly and they're projected to rise pretty uh, dramatically over the next several years. And that's really bad news because Alzheimer's is a terrible disease and it, it is you know, not just for the people who experience it, for, but for all of the, their loved ones and people around them. I'm sure that many people listening to this podcast know someone in their life, perhaps even a, a, a loved one, family member or friend that either has dementia or Alzheimer's and you've seen firsthand uh, the damage that it can do. So um, the other challenge with this, of course, is that we don't, we don't currently have a lot of great treatments for Alzheimer's. I've had Dr. Dale Bredesen on the show a few times. He's done just pioneering work in 
um, looking at how diet, lifestyle, and other factors contribute to Alzheimer's from a functional medicine perspective and what we can do to prevent and reverse that condition. So definitely check out those episodes. If you haven't heard them already, just Google uh, Revolution Health Radio, Dale Bredesen or Chris Kresser, Dale Bredesen, those episodes should pop right up. Having said that, you know, there's, there's still a, a, a really big need for additional treatments and particularly treatments that are safe and well tolerated and, and natural and unlikely to cause uh, harmful side effects and ad- adverse effects over time. So this one of the one of those treatments or, or foods compounds, what have you, is lion's mane mushroom. So we have a lot of we had a lot of cell culture in vitro studies in the past that suggested that lion's mane has really potent neuroprotective properties. But until recently, there weren't a lot of human clinical trials to back that up. That's now changing, which is uh, really exciting. So this study was called Prevention of Early Alzheimer's Disease by Ernestine A. Enriched Heresium Aranaceus. I always struggle with that one. Um, this, that's the scientific name for lion's mane mushroom. Um, mycelia pilot double-blind placebo-controlled study. Okay, so this was a 49-week double-blind placebo-controlled study, so gold standard in medical research, and the patients were randomized into two groups. Uh, one group took a 5-milligram capsule of lion's mane mushroom three times a day, so a total of 15 milligrams, and the other received a placebo. And those taking lion's mane saw significant improvements in the scores that the researchers used to assess Um, the progression of Alzheimer's. One was called the mini mental state examination score, and the other was the instrumental activities of daily living score. So the people taking lion's mane saw those scores go up, uh, whereas the people who were taking placebo did not see an improvement in those scores, and they actually saw a decrease in the cognitive ability screening instrument score. The placebo group also saw a decrease in biomarkers like calcium, albumin, apolipoprotein E4, hemoglobin, and BDNF. And then they saw elevations in alpha-1, antichromotrypsin, and amyloid beta peptide 140 over the study period. So that's <laughs> probably a lot of unfamiliar terms, but the gist of that is that in addition to seeing no improvement or a decline in cognitive uh, abilities based on those those scoring instruments. The patients who were taking placebo also saw a change in biomarkers that is consistent with a worsening of Alzheimer's, whereas the patients who were taking uh, lion's mane did not see that change in biomarkers. So again, this is a really exciting study. And when we combine other diet and lifestyle interventions that I've talked about with Dr. Dale Bredesen, Um, lion's mane could offer additional help for supporting brain health as we age. All right, so the next study is, you know, perhaps like, duh, I already knew that uh, study, but I think it's interesting, so let's talk about it. It's called the Impact of Modifiable Healthy Lifestyle Adoption on Lifetime Gain from Middle to Older Age. So this was study uh, that used data from the Japan Collaborate Cohort, or JACC, study group out of Osaka University. It's a really large 
uh, research project with almost 50,000 people. It was conducted from 1988 to 1990 in 45 different areas of Japan. And the researchers looked at how a range of factors, including diet, exercise, alcohol intake, smoking status, sleep duration, and body mass index impact lifespan. And what they found when they analyzed these data was that the factors that had the biggest impact were reducing alcohol intake, not smoking, losing weight, and increasing sleep. So again, talking about the importance of sleep, this was, that was right up there with uh, alcohol, smoking, and losing weight as one of the top four factors that affected lifespan here. And uh, those four factors, if, if people, you know, people who did the best on those four factors added up to six years of life, um, you know, starting from age 40 onward. And they also found in this study that there were benefits for these healthy lifestyle choices, even in people who were 80 years old or, or greater and for people who already had pre-existing health conditions. Okay, so again, you know, this is not like a big surprise, right? <laughs> we, it's fairly obvious to probably most of the people who are listening to this show that making good diet and lifestyle choices is going to have a, po have a positive impact on our lifespan. But I've found, as I said in the intro, that people tend to underestimate just how significant that impact can be. And certainly most people are not making the best choices because uh, data from the CDC suggests that only 6%, 6.3% to be exact, of Americans consistently engage in the top five health behaviors, which according to the CDC are never smoking, getting regular physical activity, drinking fewer than five drinks at one sitting. Wow, I mean, <laughs> anyways. Uh, maintaining a normal body weight and sleeping seven to eight hours per night. So we're not talking about super advanced health strategies here, like, you know, infrared sauna and cold therapy and, uh, you know, uh, pulsed like electromagnetic field or PEMF therapy and, you know, meditating for an hour a day. We're talking about basics here, like not smoking, getting enough exercise, not drinking five, you know, drinking fewer than five drinks at a sitting and having a normal body weight and, and getting enough sleep, 6% of Americans consistently engage in those uh, five health behaviors. So we know there's a ton of room for improvement here. I suppose that's the good way, glass half full way of looking at it. On the flip side, a study in the journal Circulation a couple of years ago found that adopting five healthy life habits can extend lifespan by an average of 13 years. So that's even greater than what was found in this particular study out of Japan that we're talking about. And those habits were very similar to the, the CDC's top five health behaviors with, with one exception. They were not smoking, uh, maintaining a healthy BMI, not drinking excessively, doing 30 minutes a day or more of moderate to vigorous physical activity. So all four of those are, were part of the CDC's criteria. But the fifth one in this study was eating a, a, a healthy diet. I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, healthy. They didn't go into a lot of detail on what com comprised a healthy diet. Um, but, you know, it was, I think, more of a whole foods diet versus eating tons of processed and refined food. So Again, not, not getting you know really fine-tuned here uh, on these health behaviors. They're just talking about the basics. And if you follow the basics, 
you can expect to live on average 13 years longer. That's an average number. So of course, for some people, it was a little bit less than that, but for some people, it was more than that too. So you can imagine that in, in some cases, especially people who are going beyond just those five basic health behaviors and engaging in you know, more physical activity or eating a really healthy diet or you know, taking supplements to optimize nutrient needs or you know, doing things like uh, occasional intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating or infrared sauna, all the stuff that we talk about that many of you are probably engaged in to some extent it could be even it's, it's likely even more than that so that could extend your lifespan by 20 years let's say that's an enormous number we're not talking about a small increase we're talking about potentially living 20 years longer than the average lifespan in the u.s which is already in you know the upper 70s in terms of of age and we haven't even started talking about socioeconomic factors or other things like that which are also known to impact lifespan so I like to share these figures because uh, I, I think some, you know, in, in all the people I've worked with and the coaches we've trained and doctors we've trained, uh, I think people are often still surprised by the extent of the impact that making good choices can have in terms of their health span and their lifespan, you know, potentially. 13 years in the circulation study and more than that likely if you're doing other things. So this is a great reminder that our choices do matter a lot. And also from the Japanese study that it's never too late to start. You know, people who are in their 80s who started making better life lifestyle choices were able to extend their lifespan. Now, of course, the earlier you do that, the earlier you make those choices, the, the more of a benefit you could probably expect, but that's not a reason not to start. Okay, uh, next study is one that found that antibiotics can lead to fungal overgrowth and infection in the gut and then um, consequently systemic fungal infections because of the effect of antibiotics on the gut microbiome. So it was called long-term antibiotic exposure promotes mortality after systemic fungal infection by driving lymphocyte dysfunction and systemic escape of commensal bacteria. So I'm going to translate this into English. Researchers basically found that taking antibiotics disrupts the immune system of the intestines. Again, not a big surprise. We've known this for decades now. But what a couple things that were made even more clear by this study is that antibiotics led to fungal overgrowth in the intestines. Then those fungal organisms poke holes essentially in the gut, making it permeable. And then the fungal organisms can escape into the bloodstream and cause systemic fungal infections, uh, which in, in immunocompromised people, like in a hospital setting, can even be fatal. It's really difficult to treat invasive candidiasis in a hospital setting. Um, this has been, you know, kind of a a big deal for many, many years. We don't have great antifungal drugs compared to antibiotics, and those systemic fungal infections are much more difficult to treat. So this is definitely an area of interest, particularly in the hospital world where people are immunocompromised, and, and, and this is a much bigger deal. The other piece of information that came out of this study is that uh, the researchers found that gut bacteria um, from both friendly and harmful bacteria are also, we're also able to escape 
in this situation because of the antibiotic use and then the increase in fungal overgrowth and the gut being becoming permeable, bacteria from the gut were also able to, to enter the bloodstream and that increased the risk of systemic bacterial infection. So that's not good either. Um, even though we do have more tools or better tools for treating those kinds of infections compared to systemic fungal infections, they're still difficult to treat. And because of growing antibiotic resistance, they are a, a serious problem and still, you know, and bacterial infections still kill many, many, many Americans each year. So, and people around the world. So, uh, but as I said in the intro, the, I, I, I sometimes do a bit of an eye roll when I read these studies because especially in the reporting around them, there's a lot of kind of uh, hyperbole about what a phenomenal discovery this is. And um, there's never, of course, any mention of the fact that, you know, even just 15 or 20 years ago, if you would have walked into a room of conventional doctors and started talking about fungal overgrowth, whether it's a side effect of antibiotics or anything else, and you mentioned the word candida, you would have been immediately labeled as a quack and they would have been rolling their eyes. And yet over the years, and especially in the past, I would say five years, there's just a growing body of research that confirms that yes, fungal overgrowth is real. We all have some yeast in our digestive tract. That's normal. That's not a problem. But when we take antibiotics or do other things that disrupt the gut, the delicate balance of all of the microorganisms in the gut, then fungal organisms can uh, become overrepresented. And you can get an overgrowth of fungal species like candida, not just candida, but candida albicans is one of the main species that um, can become opportunistic and take advantage of that situation. And now we have lots of studies showing that overgrowth of candida and other fungal organisms in the gut uh, is a risk factor for inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, you know, in this study can increase the risk of systemic fungal infections and also systemic bacterial infections and can cause a whole host of other problems. So I'm just happy to see that this is finally being recognized and in the, in the you know, conventional medical establishment, we're seeing now a lot of studies that give us insight into all of the problems that fungal overgrowth can cause. And, you know, hopefully now people will be able to go see even their conventional gastroenterologists and get testing for fungal overgrowth and treatment for it. Because until now, and even still now, in most cases, I think that's been impossible. You may recall that a while back I talked about CIFO, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth, very similar to SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. As a clinician, I began to suspect that a lot of my patients with SIBO had something else going on because they weren't responding to treatment for SIBO. And I was, you know, did a lot of research and started to discover some small but interesting studies on SIFO and um, believed, although we didn't have a ton of research, that a lot of our patients who were not responding to SIBO treatment actually had SIFO. And maybe that was even the more prominent condition. And when we started treating them for SIFO, they got better. So, fascinating area of research and I hope to see more uh, papers like this in, in the future and I'll definitely share them with you. Okay, last but not least, new guidelines from the US 
Preventative Services Task Force, which is an independent panel composed of experts in disease prevention and evidence-based medicine on whether people should be taking low-dose aspirin for prevention of cardiovascular disease. So as you probably know, this has been a recommendation for many years in the U.S. and other countries that middle-aged people and, and older should take low-dose aspirin every day to lower their risk of heart attack and stroke. I've been critical of this for many years because according to my reading of the research, there's the risks outweighed the benefits. And so I was actually happy to see that the US Preventative Service Task Force just released an update and they are no longer recommending low dose aspirin for people who are not at high risk of heart disease. Uh, more specifically for people who have not already had a heart attack or a stroke. So that's a huge change. You know, like I said, in the past, it was recommended that pretty much everybody middle-aged and older would take low-dose aspirin, even if they hadn't already had a heart attack or a stroke. Now the task force is saying that they've reviewed the research and they found that taking low-dose aspirin to prevent a first heart attack or stroke may have only a quote, small net benefit for people aged 40 to 59 who are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So not for healthy people. And even for people who are at high risk, the benefit is very small. And most importantly, they found that that benefit is often outweighed by the risk of significant bleeding events that can be caused or that can be increased by taking even low dose aspirin. And those bleeding events can be fatal, especially in the elderly. So. These new guidelines suggest that people who have not had a heart attack or stroke should not take daily aspirin, even at a low dose, although they do still suggest that for people who have already had a heart attack or a stroke. So really important re uh, new recommendation and research that this is based on. Most Many people I've found just kind of think that aspirin is is safe, almost like a vitamin, and that has been encouraged. I mean, that that belief didn't come from nowhere. It was, you know, the, these are recommendations that came from public health authorities. But the reality is that aspirin can alter the natural structure and function of red blood cells, as well as how uh, blood flows through our veins and our arteries. This is called hemodynamics, and, and these really foundational changes um, that aspirin causes in hemodynamics and the structure and function of red blood cells explains why aspirin has such a wide range of adverse effects, even at relatively low doses like um, baby aspirin. So aspirin has been associated with everything from uh, increased risk of ulcer, hearing loss and tinnitus, bleeding in the brain, increase in influenza mortality, Crohn's disease, Ray's syndrome, increased risk of H. pylori infection, and some of those effects are observed even at the lower dose, like 80 milligrams, uh, rather than the full adult dose of uh, 325 milligrams. So what do we do with this information? I think obviously if you're taking low dose aspirin a day right now and you, and you have not had a heart attack or, or a stroke, uh, regardless of your age, these recommendations suggest that uh, you shouldn't do that anymore. And you should you know, talk to your doctor about it or your clinician, wh whoever is made that recommendation in the first place and point them towards these new recommendations. 
Uh, you can look them up. Uh, again, it's the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. There are also a bunch of news articles in like, you know, mainstream media about it, so you won't have any trouble finding it. And then you can also consider other steps you can take from a diet, nutrition, and lifestyle perspective that could lower your risk of cardiovascular disease without increasing the risk of adverse events that are associated with even taking a baby aspirin daily. So, you know, there, there are a whole range of things to consider. Uh, the long chain omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA have been shown to have a, a mild blood thinning effect without increasing the risk of bleeding. So just increasing the amount of seafood, um, cold water, fatty fish that you eat and or taking fish oil or cod liver oil uh, at a moderate dose could, could be uh, helpful. Dark chocolate actually has some antiplatelet effects on, on a milder scale. And I'm sure you won't be upset to hear me say that <laughs> and eating chocolate on a, you know, dark chocolate on a daily basis might help with that. Um, there are some common herbs and spices that you can add to your food that are known to have uh, inhibit thrombosis without prolonging bleeding time. So those uh, garlic is one of them and turmeric is another, thyme and rosemary, uh, tarragon, all of those are readily available, cheap spices that you can use in your cooking uh, to help. And then curcumin, which is an extract from turmeric uh, and pycnogenol, which is a, a pine bark extract. These have been shown along with other nutrients like sulforaphane to have a mild blood thinning effect. And they have a, a number of other benefits as well. So if you're taking those for any reason um, as anti-inflammatories or for histamine in the case of pycnogenol, or if you wanna take them even just for their mild blood thinning effect, you should check with your clinician or practitioner that you're working with or um, you know, you can experiment with those on your own, but do be aware that those supplements would be contraindicated if you are taking a blood thinner. Um, so you, you definitely want to be careful with that and, and at least check with your clinician before you start doing that on your own. Okay, everybody, hope you enjoyed the show. Please keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. And uh, even though we haven't been doing as many Q&A episodes, the questions actually inform the topics that I pick for these uh, solo cast research review episodes and the guests as well. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, keep sending them in there and I will talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.